Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Alexis Clark, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today we are starting a new segment about the topics that are often not the first to come to mind when you think of public health. Our first topic is human trafficking. This episode's original content was produced by the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights, which is an interdisciplinary center that is committed to educating the community about human rights and its challenges and much more. The conversation is moderated by Brian Farrell, Associate Director for the Center of Human Rights. He is joined by Professor Siobhan Malali, who is the current United States Special Rapporteur for trafficking in persons, especially women and children. Siobhan is established professor of human rights law and director of the Irish Center for Human Rights at the National University of Ireland, Galway. In 2020, Siobhan was appointed as the UN Special Rapporteur for trafficking in persons, especially women and children. She's been a member of the Council of Europe's group of experts on action against trafficking, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, and the Joint Treaty Body of the Northern Irish Human Rights Commission and the Irish Human Rights Commission. She is a member of the Permanent Court of Arbitration and was the founding Joint Editor-in-Chief of the Irish Yearbook of International Law. Siobhan has published widely in the fields of gender, women's rights, migration, asylum, and multiculturalism. She's held academic appointments at an impressive list of institutions around the globe. I will conduct an interview style question and answer with Siobhan today. Welcome Siobhan, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, Brian. I'm delighted to join you. So Siobhan, I'll ask you to begin by giving us some background on the modern phenomenon of human trafficking an issue that's received prominent attention in the international system over the past two decades. What's the nature and scope of this problem? Well, the the problem is a global one. And I think it's important to remember that human trafficking refers to a range of different forms of exploitation. When we think of human trafficking, we think of sexual exploitation, uh, labor exploitation, for example. It can also include trafficking for the purpose of forced marriage, for organ harvesting, or for the purpose of forced criminality, for exploitation in criminal activity. So, for example, in drug trafficking, in cannabis cultivation, in armed conflict settings, in participation in terrorist crimes. So it can incorporate a whole range of forms of exploitation, and it is a global problem. The majority of identified victims of trafficking globally are victims of sexual exploitation. And the majority of identified victims are women and girls. And the majority of those are victimized for the purpose of sexual exploitation. But we know that many victims are not identified as such, in particular in contexts of labor exploitation or forced criminality. And while we tend to think of trafficking as being something that happens across borders, we also need to understand that it happens within borders. So internal forms of trafficking within our own countries, within our own neighborhoods and regions is very prevalent. And it can be in the construction sector, it could be in the hospitality 
or tourism sector. It can be in nail salons. It can be in car washes in a whole range of different sectors in extractive mining industries, for example. It can be linked to the coffee or cocoa products that you buy that may be produced by children who are trafficked for the purpose of labor exploitation uh, in Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, for example. So it's, it's a very broad phenomenon and it is relevant to all of us. It doesn't matter where we live, what region, it touches all of us in our everyday lives. I imagine it's difficult to quantify this this issue, this problem, but but do we have a sense of the the scope, how prevalent this is around the globe, how many people are impacted? So we, if you look at the UNODC, which is the the lead UN agency um, that works on combating human trafficking and other forms of of criminal activity. UNODC produces a a global report. Their most recent one is from 2020. It's every two years. They estimate about 40 million victims worldwide, a multi-billion dollar industry or criminal activity. But all of these, this data and these figures, they may be an underestimation because many of the victims are simply not identified as such. But these are the, the estimates and they're based on data gathered from across most countries in the world um, where it's possible to get data. But as I said, it's often not available or not disaggregated. So we need to be cautious about the statistics, but we know that it's very prevalent. You can also look at the US State Department tip reports, the trafficking in persons reports, which are produced annually. And again, which include estimates for all countries in the world, uh, except the US, actually, where it, it doesn't rank itself, <laughs> which is interesting. But there, that's a, a useful source of data that we we look to and we rely on. But it is one of the the most prevalent criminal industries, if you like, globally. Siobhan, you were appointed last year as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons by the UN Human Rights Council. Can you tell us a bit about what this work entails, how you were selected, and how it relates to other UN efforts to address human trafficking? Okay, so I might start with the, I'll work through the the questions backwards, if you like. How does the work, well, first of all, as UN Special Rapporteur, I'm part of the special procedures of the United Nations. We are independent experts. We're not part of the UN. We're not employees of the UN. So we are independent. Some of the independent experts are part of working groups, for example, working group on business and human rights. Others are just one individual. So my mandate is one individual. And the mandate is designated by a resolution of the Human Rights Council. We have a lot of flexibility in relation to our methods of work. We have a manual of operations. We have a code of conduct, which requires us to be impartial, independent, and sets out the methods of work. In relation to our cooperation with other bodies, again, that is very much up to the individual special rapporteur. Uh, I work closely with all of the UN treaty bodies and have addressed all of the treaty bodies, had meetings with the chairpersons and formally addressed the UN Committee on Racial Discrimination and made submissions to other treaty bodies. So that interaction is critically important. We had a webinar earlier today, which included a member of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. He's also a former member of the African Committee of Experts on Rights and Welfare of the Child to bring in that perspective from the African region on children in armed conflict settings, for example. 
We also work closely with UN agencies. So UNODC, I mentioned, would be the main partner on issues of human trafficking, but also UN High Commissioner for Refugee because of the links with forced displacement. And I've been doing quite a bit of work with the Global Protection Cluster, which involves a number of UN agencies. And it is important to coordinate. So I'm part of what's called a coordination group across the UN to ensure that we we combine our efforts, if you like, and also to try and have a global impact. The selection process for these special procedures, it's a global competition. So the post is advertised uh, on the UN, uh, on the Office of the High Commissioner and Human Rights Council website. You can apply. So I applied, I think it was April of 2020. Uh, So it was during the lockdown, um, sitting in my attic, working remotely. I got an email from a friend saying, you should apply for this. I thought, okay. And honestly, that is how it came about. I applied. There is then, now some of those who apply seek a nomination from a state. And so that can involve engaging with a state or a number of states. Some would uh, request a nomination from civil society or NGOs or a group. I didn't do that, I just applied. And that's noted on the list of applicants, whether it's a nomination from a state or civil society. The disadvantage of not having a nomination is that you don't have lots of people lobbying for you. The advantage is that you are independent and that gives you a certain strength, I think, in terms of how you can operate And it may also enhance the perception of your independence. There is a short, I mean, it's quite a formal process. The Human Rights Council is an intergovernmental body. They set up what's called a consultative committee, which comprised, I think, of five or six ambassadors, permanent representatives to the UN in Geneva. They undertake the shortlisting process. I got an email saying I was shortlisted and asking me to present for interview the following week. So there was then an interview, which was about 45 minutes, maybe one hour, where you're asked a lot of technical questions about the mandate, how you would, what would be the priorities, your own experience, how you would deal with challenges to your independence, etc. And that from the shortlist, there is then a ranking and that ranking is then sent over to the president of the Human Rights Council, which is a rotate position. And the president of the Human Rights Council can actually change the ranking order. And that happens. It didn't happen in my case. So I was ranked first. The president of the Human Rights Council didn't change that. And so the ranking order was submitted to the Human Rights Council as given. And the Human Rights Council then voted on it at the end of July. So that's the process. It's a three-year appointment, renewable once. And you have to work within the terms of the resolution of the Human Rights Council. In terms of what my work entails, the core is two thematic reports, one to the Human Rights Council, which I've just given yesterday and today, and one to the UN General Assembly, which will be presented at the end of October. The themes of those reports, you can decide yourself. So that's quite exciting. You can Pick an area that you want to work on that you see as being a a problem area, a challenge. But really, you want to consult with civil society, with practitioners to get a sense of what are the burning issues. You may have your own ideas also about that, but you also want to ensure that you have a global relevance. So I think in that sense, it's really about engaging. So I've had a lot of consultations with the African regional bodies, with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, Special Rapporteurs, 
with the ASEAN Commission on the Status of Women and Independent Human Rights Commission as well. And I know the European bodies quite well. So my first thematic report was on non-punishment of victims of trafficking. So to ensure that victims of trafficking are not imprisoned, are not forcibly returned, so are not punished for unlawful acts like immigration offences, for example, or engagement in terrorist activities, or in some countries, prostitution or sex work is criminalised. So again, non-punishment for unlawful acts that are a consequence of being trafficked, that's contrary to that principle. And the report to the General Assembly will be looking at the trafficking terrorism nexus. You then also have country visits and country reports where you meet civil society, you meet government practitioners, the judicial sector, legal sector. You try to visit those most affected, meet with survivors, victims and publish two country reports usually a year. So those are hugely important also. And you can only undertake the country visit with the permission of the state. So some countries never accept special procedures requests. Some countries have a standing invitation and they say that they will accept, but often there are reasons to delay or it's not the right time. So it's actually a whole process of negotiation to try to get a country visit set up. And unfortunately, at the moment, those are not happening, but we're hoping that they may be resumed. The two country visits for me for this year were Mexico and Bangladesh. They were agreed, but we haven't been able to undertake them yet. We may be able to undertake the visit to Mexico in the autumn or in the fall. Bangladesh is likely to be more problematic given the COVID-19 situation, of course. So that's a quick snapshot, but I can follow up on any of those again. Well, I'm curious, you mentioned these themes in your report, and I was going to ask you about pressing issues or emerging issues in this this area related to trafficking, non-punishment, you mentioned the connection to terrorism. Are there other kind of key pressing concerns in this area that, that you've identified that you think need greater attention? Yes. So the broad thematic areas of my mandate for the first three years are first looking at trafficking and conflict settings. So in armed conflict settings, where we might think it was obvious that there would be attention to trafficking in persons, but in fact, the key actors in those situations often know very little about human trafficking, are not aware of the kind of indicators or how to respond or how to ensure protection of victims. So that is a a, a very pressing issue, particularly with regard to children recruited into armed conflict, including for engagement in terrorist activities. And more broadly in conflict settings where working with the Global Protection Cluster, for example, that would include a lot of humanitarian actors, refugee protection actors, they found that there was very limited awareness of the risks of human trafficking. If you look, for example, at the Tigray situation in Ethiopia, We see very high numbers of children separated from families, forcibly displaced into Sudan. We've seen reports of widespread sexual violence. Those are all indicators that human trafficking um, may be a very serious risk, including uh, for children. But it's not something that is being reported or picked up yet. So that's something that I, I want to work more on. The second area would be broadly in relation to migrant work and migrants more generally in irregular situations who are very vulnerable to exploitation and at heightened risk of trafficking. And here, 
particularly I want to look at the kind of harder to reach sectors like fisheries, where all kinds of jurisdictional issues arise and gaps arise in relation to inspectorate, inspectorates and labour standards. Domestic work, of course, continues to be an area where there is a high risk of exploitation and limited enforcement. And looking at supply chains and the role of multinational corporations. I mentioned already cocoa, for example, tobacco plantations, the, the role of big multinational corporations looking at their supply chains. So the recent US Supreme Court decision in relation to child trafficking for the purpose of labor exploitation in Cote d'Ivoire and the responsibility, how to ensure responsibility and the accountability on the part of Nestle, for example. So what kind of tools to use? So those are areas um, of concern. The other major area that we are constantly being asked to step up our efforts on is in relation to trafficking in the digital environment, the online world, child trafficking online for the purpose of sexual exploitation, but also recruitment of workers and subsequent exploitation how, how to be more effective in prevention and how to ensure effective remedies. And some of you may have followed the recent decision just two or three days ago of the, the Texas Supreme Court in relation to Facebook and its uh, potential liability as an online service provider in relation to trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation happening through Facebook. And the Texas Supreme Court handed down a very important judgment, concluding that Facebook was not immune from liability for, for content published by its users and did have a responsibility in relation to that and also for its regulation. So it's interesting they commented that the internet is not a lawless no man's land as such. So that's a, a very pressing issue. And we've had meetings with leaders in the tech sector in all of the major tech companies, because that's a, an increasing concern in the context of COVID-19, that you have more children online, out of school and traffickers working on the internet. And then some of the challenges of international cooperation where trafficking is taking place online and how to respond effectively to that. So those are some of the, the immediately pressing issues, I would say. Siobhan, you mentioned this, this online recruiting as a result of the pandemic or an increase as a result of the pandemic. And you also mentioned difficulty doing country visits. I'm just wondering if there have been other impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of human trafficking that have you know, impacted the, the rhythms, the nature of trafficking or other efforts to suppress trafficking? Yes, absolutely. And this is something, first, the obvious one is that you have more children out of school, uh, which in most places is a protective environment or should be. Children then being online and they, the risks of that increased presence and risks of exploitation. You also have the, the impact of a closure of borders, restrictions on movement, which may push people who are desperate to move, whether to seek employment or just a better place in the world, to borrow from Hannah Arendt, that they may be pushed into riskier journeys or more exploitative situations. We know that people continue to move, so that closure of borders can be problematic. The imposition of curfews, for example, can also be problematic in that we don't see people at risk and they're more hidden. There's also the diversion of law enforcement authorities and resources to responding to the pandemic, enforcing 
regulations linked to the pandemic. And so there has been a concern that we're not seeing as many victims being identified as such. And then with the collapse of informal economies and rising unemployment, we have seen a situation where migrant workers have just been left stranded in a number of countries, not able to get home, not able to access services or shelters and without social protection or social security systems to step in when they've lost employment and they are very much at risk of exploitation. There have been some return uh, reports of increased forced returns also without taking the steps to identify whether or not a person is at risk of trafficking on return or re-trafficking. So those are very serious consequences. And then things like shelters and service providers not being able to work in the same way, limited capacity, not being able to offer shelter, reduced capacity to do that, having to work online to provide services, but not able to reach everyone. So those are some of the challenges, but we, we have also seen NGOs, civil society, responding quickly, you know, trying to set up mobile units, trying to reach out, but it certainly has been a very significant challenge. Siobhan, you talked about this theme of non-punishment a bit earlier, and I understand that there's been a, a general trend over the last dozen or so years away from a law enforcement focus in this arena of trafficking to more of a victim center approach. And I assume that non-punishment is a part of that. Are there other aspects of of this shift? What does that mean, both in theory and in practice, this move from more of a law enforcement response to more of a victim-centered response? Thank you. Yes. So this is really a core focus of my mandate, um, is to protect, ensure the effective protection of the human rights of victims. And we have seen an evolution since the adoption in 2000 of the, the UN Trafficking in Persons Protocol, the Palermo Protocol, which is a protocol to a transnational organized crime convention. So it's very much focused on law enforcement. It's the legal provisions on assistance to victims are quite limited, not very strict obligations on states. But since then, we've seen a range of UN human rights treaty bodies, We've seen the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights adopting principles and guidelines on human rights and human trafficking. We've seen jurisprudence and case law from regional bodies, including from the Inter-American Court and quite a lot from the European Court of Human Rights as well. And new legal instruments such as the Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking. And these enshrine greater protections for victims, including, for example, a right to assistance such as emergency accommodation, uh, specialized psychological support and counseling, some access to social security. There should be a right to work after a period of time. And very importantly, a recovery and reflection period that a person cannot be forcibly returned or removed from the state for a period of time to enable them to recover and reflect on their experience. And a key kind of question is whether the assistance is being provided unconditionally, as it should be. It shouldn't be conditional on cooperation with a criminal justice process. That would be a human rights-based approach. The other questions are rights of residence, whether it's short-term or long-term, that where a victim of trafficking may be in an irregular migration situation, that they would be granted a right to stay for a period of time to enable them to, to live, to work, to build a new life. And that they any return, the legal standard, of course, is non-refoulement, that you shouldn't be returned to a situation 
where you face a risk of persecution, and that can include trafficking. So any returns should be safe and preferably voluntary. That's the language used. So those are the, the core human rights protections, and also that you would be facilitated and supported and enabled to participate in criminal justice proceedings if you wish to, to ensure accountability and access to compensation as an effective remedy for the human rights violation that occurs. And that can include, for example, payment of wages, as well as compensation for the harms endured. Thank you. I want to pause for just a second. I see that we have questions coming in from our attendees, and I do want to, again, invite folks to submit questions in writing through the Q&A function, and we will try to turn to those uh, in just a few minutes here. I'm curious to explore something you mentioned earlier, Siobhan, the relationship between kind of the corporate accountability aspect of trafficking. And I'm curious, given the growth of the field of and the development of guidelines and principles on business and human rights over the past 10, 15 years. This is another area that has seen increased attention in the international system and in human rights circles. There's now a UN working group on business and human rights. And I'm, I'm curious if you can expand a bit on that relationship and whether that increased attention on business and human rights, that linkage has, how much potential it has to impact this issue of trafficking? Thank you very much. Yes, that's a, a very important question. And I think, for example, I work quite closely with the, with the whole business and human rights agenda at the UN. One concrete way in which we do that is in relation to communications, which is if we receive a submission or a complaint from an individual or group of individuals to say that there is an impending violation or an ongoing violation of human rights linked to my mandate, we then issue a communication to the state alleging this wrongdoing and asking for a response and detailing the particular legal issues raised and the, the factual scenario. And we have jointly issued a number of communications with the working group on business and human rights, for example, to a number of countries that continue to import goods that may um, be linked to the use of forced labor in China. We also have issued those communications to uh, companies, to businesses. So although we primarily engage with states, we can also engage with corporations, with businesses to highlight their obligations in relation to supply chains and the obligations of due diligence and the serious human rights violations occurring. We And that has included also joint communications in, to the tech sector in relation to on, online sexual exploitation of girls. And those become public after a period of time. So that publicity, that focus on the communications and the response from states is also public. That is a way of trying to generate reforms and change. But more broadly, I would say is that the, the business and human rights agenda, because it also includes strengthening labor rights and labor protections, workers' rights, that is essential to combating trafficking because it's, it, it looks at the continuums of exploitation, the whole spectrum of exploitation. And if we have strong protections of labor rights, an enabling environment for trade unions and collective bargaining, all of the kinds of things that a business and human rights agenda call for, then there's less risk of trafficking occurring. So it's critically important to the prevention agenda. Over. That reinforces something that I suspect many of us teach about human rights, this notion of 
interrelated, interconnected, intersupported rights. So I appreciate that. You know, the last decade or so, we've seen certainly uh, a growth in global migration, conflict-related economic migration. I'm curious, how do migration and state efforts to regulate migration, I assume there are strong impacts on trafficking. You mentioned, for example, when borders are closed, that can drive people to trafficking as a, a means of accessing a particular state. Are there, are there policies that can be adopted to mitigate the risk of trafficking in these situations where migration is, is, is such a driver? Yes, absolutely. And one of the one of the ways in which I tried to intervene in this debate is in relation to the current regional reviews of the Global Compact on Migration. So the regional reviews are ongoing at the moment. The next one coming up is in the African region in July. So I will be speaking to the, the regional review specifically about Objective 10 of the Global Compact on Migration and Objective 10 relates to the commitment that was made to eliminate trafficking in persons. And it sets out a series of actions. Now, this is an international legal text, uh, soft law instrument. So it's relatively general. But in fact, if states implemented those recommendations, uh, it would bring about significant change. It includes things like trying to expand safe and regular migration, expanding routes to, to work, safe work, not having tied visas. So ensuring that a work visa is not tied to a particular employer or not tied to a particular sector, enabling workers to change employers and to move within sectors. So giving more power to the worker, ensuring uh, that they are less at risk of exploitation. So trying to remedy that power imbalance. It also looks at trying to ensure longer term residence, access to social security as protections, again, against exploitation. And safe reporting, so a firewall to ensure that you can report exploitation, risks of trafficking or actual or ongoing trafficking without fear of being punished, for example, for being an irregular migrant or without fear of other forms of sanction. So that is very important. And again, the Global Compact talks about an enabling environment for civil society and partnership approaches, but really looking at migration as something positive, expanding safe, regular routes and recognizing the contributions that migrants can make when, when migration is regulated in a fair way and is more open. And so that is really an important contribution and where we need more cooperation. I should also say that, for example, refugee resettlement and thankfully, the U.S. is now engaging again in refugee resettlement. That ensures that refugees can move safely as part of a humanitarian program, rather than having to flee and seek asylum on an individual basis. So that, again, is hugely important in terms of preventing exploitation that can take place en route. Family reunification, again, is should be a safe migration route. So migrants should be able to reunite with their families. Refugees should be able to reunite with their families in a safe way. So people are not pushed into paying large sums of money and then being caught up in a criminal world where they are at extreme risk of exploitation, especially children. We in the United States tend to think of human rights as something that applies and happens elsewhere. And 
you mentioned even the State Department's report doesn't look at the United States itself. So we tend to think of human rights beyond our borders. But I'm wondering what you can tell us about trafficking here into the United States and within the United States. Thank you. Well, first, I would say there, there's a very interesting report from my mandate from my predecessor, Maria Grazia Jamaranaro, who undertook a country visit to the U.S., uh, it's from 2016, but it's still quite a lot of the analysis and in particular the recommendations are very relevant. And I would also you know, point to the work of really excellent NGOs and organizations like the Human Trafficking Legal Center in uh, DC who are doing incredible work on this issue. There are a whole range of sectors in which we see exploitation within the U.S., Sexual exploitation, of course, of children and of adults remains uh, a huge problem. And here, I think we need to be mindful of the intersections of race, ethnicity, poverty, as well as gender. And so the often the targeting of children who may be in a very vulnerable situation, whose families may be in a very vulnerable situation due to absence of social protection mechanisms, or unemployment or other difficulties that they are facing. And there we see children at particular risk. My predecessor's report also highlights risks faced by indigenous peoples, for example, who again may be at heightened risk of exploitation in the labor context or sexual exploitation. Migrant workers in a range of sectors, in particular domestic work, but also agricultural workers and the hospitality and catering sector. There where we see particular difficulties around workers being in irregular situations with limited opportunities to report exploitation or to change employer. And the my predecessor's report calls on the US and to ratify a range of human rights instruments to try to strengthen these protections and to ensure increases in minimum wage, affordable access um, to medical care and social security, the formation of trade unions as an important oversight and protection mechanism. So those are some of the possible responses. But I think across a whole range of areas, particularly, as I said, in the labor sector, in sometimes more remote or hard to reach places of employment, exploitation is, is very prevalent. And that's not even beginning to kind of address the question of online exploitation, sexual exploitation online, and the role of the tech sector. And that recent Texas Supreme Court judgment, I think, is quite telling on that. Apart from that, I would say the role of big multinational corporations in not following up effectively or as much as they should be in relation to what's happening in their supply chains. And there they must bear some responsibility because they have the capacity to do that and they have legal obligations of due diligence. So th those are a range of areas um, that I would highlight of particular relevance in the U.S., Thank you, Siobhan. As I said, I'd like to turn to questions coming in from our audience now, and of course, invite uh, folks to continue submitting questions using the Q&A function. Uh, a question that came in from someone in a healthcare setting, are there best practices to detect human trafficking? The, the questioner notes that certainly victims would at some point need medical care like anyone else in the general population. So are there best practices for professionals to detect human trafficking. And I'm just going to add to that, are there 
additional professions or areas that are, are particularly key potential interveners, such as health? Absolutely. Thank you very much for that question. Healthcare professionals are really critically important as partners in identifying victims and in identifying situations of, uh, at risk. And the International Council of Nurses, for example, has been very active in highlighting the role that nurses can play and do play in identifying victims, in rolling out training on indicators, how to identify potential victims, and, and then what are the steps to actually report. So ensuring that all those in the nursing professions are aware of the steps to, to report and to identify victims. To, to give you an example, when I was with the Council of Europe group of experts, we did a country visit to Sweden. And in Stockholm, it was reported, for example, that there were concerns uh, around the situation of contract cleaners, contract cleaning staff who were being recruited from Moldova, who appeared to be on regular work permits and in regular working conditions, but who were seeking medical assistance, emergency reproductive uh, health services on an unusually high rate from healthcare professionals in the city centre in Stockholm. And this was picked up as an issue of concern, investigated, and the, the situation that they were in, which involved both labor exploitation and sexual exploitation, and that is often combined, was identified and recognized. So yes, there, there's a lot of work has been done. And as I said, a key organization there would be the International Council of Nurses, who really have a lot of activity, a lot of events, a lot of work done in terms of training as well. So yes, they, they're critically important partners and all healthcare professionals. And of course, particularly in relation to trafficking for the purpose of organ removal, and sale of organs, healthcare professionals are the key partners, but also much more broadly. Thank you. Another question we had asked related to conspiracy theories around trafficking, and certainly here in the United States, we've had this increase in theories about trafficking of children and global cabals of elites. And the, the questioner asks, has this attention, has, have these theories made your work more difficult or has it drawn attention to your work in new ways? Yes, this is something that has been mentioned to me. I would say no, it hasn't uh, impacted directly on my work as such, but what does happen is that the kind of circulation of what might be conspiracy theories can politicize the discussion around exploitation in a way that is not necessarily helpful, because of course human rights and the protection of human rights is political, but you don't want to get hijacked by different debates or different sections of, of you know, particular political discourses. So that can be a distraction which can take away from the focus on the forms of exploitation and then critically what, what needs to be done to to stop that, to try to ensure effective remedies, prevention and protection for victims. So as with any of 
this kind of circulation of what may be conspiracy theories, it, it, it can be a distraction. On the other hand, as you note, it can raise awareness around the prevalence of sexual exploitation and the involvement of people from all sectors of society, potentially. But I think the, the key thing is that we need to focus on not kind of sensationalist news headlines, but actually the everyday ex- exploitation in front of us and the, the risks that are being faced and what we need to do to correct that. Over. Thanks. Thank you. Now, you've noted that the U.S. State Department in its annual TIPS report compiles good data on other countries. Is there solid, reliable data on trafficking in the United States? And who who compiles that? Well, there are different parts of the U.S. administration, certainly, that that do compile debate data. There is normally an ambassador at large on trafficking and that office does quite a bit of work internally also. UNODC in its global report, of course, includes the US as well. So there are lots of, the Department of Labor actually does excellent work in trying to document and collate data in relation to labor exploitation as well. So there, there are a range of, of different kinds of sources. And at a global level, of course, UN human rights treaty bodies and the Universal Periodic Review, those are mechanisms or procedures for engaging with the US in terms of looking at gaps and challenges within the US. So the US, of course, has not ratified um, the CEDAW Convention, the, Com- the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, or the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's the only country that has not done so. But it is a party to the Convention Against Torture, the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and those uh, the treaty bodies linked to those human rights treaties do raise issues around human trafficking, particularly in a migration context, and also highlighting the non-discrimination obligation that we need to ensure that prevention activities and protection activities are, are undertaken without discrimination against a minority community or an indigenous community or without discrimination on the grounds of race or ethnicity. And also in relation to disabilities and people with disabilities who are sometimes a target, particularly in institutionalized settings. And there again, uh, there is oversight and commentary to the US on its obligation to ensure that people with disabilities are given effective protection, but are also supported and facilitated in participating in any legal proceedings uh, in relation to human trafficking. We have a question from an educator about working with the children of migrant workers, asking how can educators recognize if their students are at risk for trafficking? Thank you very much for that. There, there, there is a lot of material available, for example, from UNODC and UNICEF on what are the indicators of, of human trafficking. And many of these are similar to, you know, recognizing when children may be in situations of risk. And here it it can be things like children going missing or not turning up, not having passports or passports being taken from them, for example, or families in that kind of situation, or there may be other indicators of sexual exploitation ongoing. But here I think it should be looked at broadly as a situation of children at risk and the, the kinds of indicators there. And it's really important to engage with local communities to try to identify those situations and recognize them and see what may be required in terms of 
effective protection and prevention. And early identification is critical to ensure that the situation doesn't arise uh, and to prevent ongoing trafficking. And unfortunately, children of victims of trafficking often themselves become victims because they're confined within situations not given protection. So that, that is a really serious problem and concern. Siobhan, another question comments on the fact that victims of human trafficking are often hiding in plain sight and go unidentified in places such as hospitals and airports. And I'll note personally that increasingly we will see here, even in Iowa, in truck stops, in travel stops along the interstate highways, postings about be on the lookout for human trafficking. We're wondering, are there efforts by the UN to increase this public awareness, particularly among those service providers and professionals who who may have? Yes, there's a lot of work goes on in relation to training of professionals and training of all frontline workers who may come into contact with victims and to enable them to identify situations of risk and then to know what is the next step, what phone call to make, what are the emergency lines, what are the helplines, where can information be got. And a lot of work has been done, for example, with the International Transport Federation, working with those involved in in transportation, transport workers, so that they're aware and can identify situations of risk and lots and lots of awareness, raising awareness, materials, information, leaflets. So UNODC, UNICEF, UN Women, ILO, the International Labour Organization, IOM does a lot of awareness raising work, International Organization for Migration and lots of really excellent NGOs and municipalities as well. So yes, there, there is a lot of work ongoing. It's important that it is accessible to people with disabilities, that it is available in a range of different languages. And they're working with community leaders, working with faith-based organizations, working with refugee groups and migrant groups themselves and trade unions to ensure that it trickles out and down everywhere. I think that that's really important. But I think there is a lot more awareness now around human trafficking. A lot of the literature tends to focus on sexual exploitation. So we also need to look at labor exploitation and other forms of exploitation. And it's interesting, as part of my work, for example, I was in what's called one of the hotspots in Sicily and southern Italy. And all of the literature, all of the information being handed out to people arriving on boats, all of the pictures were of women or girls. There were there were no images of men or boys. Just a, a very small thing, but of course it means that we tend then not to identify or recognize boys who may be at risk or adult men, and they are perceived as somehow less vulnerable. And then also for girls and women, unless they fit a particular stereotype of an abject victim, they may not be recognized. So you don't have to be in chains to be a victim of trafficking. So again, that's that's really important that we recognize the different ways in which trafficking can manifest itself, and that it can be ongoing over a period of time. So it's important that the complexity of people's situations is recognized. But I would say, yes, there there is a lot of work ongoing, lots of training, lots of awareness raising activity. Thank you. So Siobhan, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very, very busy schedule to talk with us and share so much information today. That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Professor Siobhan Malali, Brian Farrell, 
and the rest of the team at the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. Again, this was just an excerpt of a webinar that they produced, and we will link the full webinar down in the description. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.